This is a Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 27. Welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part 27, The Massacre of 88 on Trial. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsi Zirnavis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms, and we invite you to check out our parts 1 through 26 of this series that are already posted. To become a sponsor or patron of Rook Media, please contact us through our website. All right, let's get started. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, Part 27. In 1988, in the aftermath of the Iran-Iraq War, and a few years into the reign of the Islamic Republic, there was a wholesale brutal killing of political prisoners by the Khomeini regime. Not a lot was known about this horrific incident at the time, but over the years more and more information has emerged about the atrocities of 1988. And now, as some of you may know, there has been a very significant trial taking place in Stockholm, Sweden in 2022 that represents the first time someone has been charged in relation to that massacre of political prisoners in Iran. The man on trial is named Hamid Nouri, and the outcome of the trial could have major implications for the Iranian regime and how the world and the families of the victims contend with those who took part in atrocities committed under the Islamic Republic. So, what exactly was the massacre of 1988, who was involved, and who is Hamid Nouri? On this episode, I'm joined by someone who is an authority on the current proceedings in Sweden and has been directly involved. Dr. Kaveh Musavi is an Iranian-British human rights lawyer and an international arbitrator at the International Court of Arbitration. Dr. Musavi was finishing his PhD at Oxford University in the UK at the time of the 1979 revolution. He subsequently has been the head of public interest law at Oxford for 12 years and is now Associated Research Fellow at Oxford. And right now, Dr. Kaveh Musavi joins me from Oxford, England today. Hello, sir. Hi, uh, good to good to be with you. 
Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for doing this, and and I I hope you won't mind some elementary questions, as as this is going to serve as something of a primer to understand uh, what happened in 1988 and where we're at with this significant trial. Can we start with the history? What what was the 1988 massacre that involved the mass execution of political prisoners in Iran? Well, something like five thousand. Um uh, prisoners who had been in prison for better part of a decade at the time when the late Khomeini issued the fatwa, which is now known as the death fatwa, were murdered in cold blood in a period of something like eight, eight and a half weeks over the course of the summer of 1988. Very shortly after Iran was forced to accept the UN Security Council resolution on the ending of the war, um, Khomeini decided that he had to find some victims to, for his embarrassment. Here was a man who, in his dogmatic efforts, was going to uh, conquer Washington, D.C., and uh, destroy Israel and uh, liberate Iraq, get rid of Saddam, and spread the Iranian revolution all over the world. And he hadn't even been able to expel the Iraqi aggressors from Iranian soil. So after something like a million casualties, hundreds of thousands of dead on both sides, um, destruction of the country, um, hundreds of billions of dollars in damages to the Iranian economy, um, he had to find some scapegoat, some sort of an excuse, a distraction of attention for his um, lamentable policies which had led first of all to the war and then led to the defeat in war um, and he issued a fatwa regarding all those prisoners who were in prison already saying that if they had not if they're not prepared to recant their political opposition to the regime at the time they should be executed um, more like judicially murdered yeah you, so, you've, you've actually um I've seen you say this before, that the, that the over 4,000, or as you just said, 5,000 prisoners were not executed, but judicially murdered. What's the difference? Well, the difference is execution is the final stage of a long judicial process. In the United States, it takes an average of about 20 years from the moment a person is charged, not from the moment that he's arrested, but the person is charged until he's um, judicially executed, where the Court of Appeals are exhausted and all the aspects are, of the case are relitigated and new evidence is looked for. And um, But in Iran, the trial on average took about three minutes. So this is not a, it's not a trial. It's not a judicial process. It's simply um, murder. It's a, an act of murder engaged in by the state they try to pretend that this is a judicial decision. It was nothing of the sort. We can discuss the details of these sham trials, um, usually limited to three questions. Are you a Muslim? Um, do you support the regime? Are you prepared to kill on behalf of the regime? And then absurd questions like, do you pray? And, and this kind of thing. That's mm. not, that's not, with no right of appeal. Overwhelming majority of these people were already uh, tried, tried in inverted commas, and sentenced many, many years ago. There were kids who were 12 years old, 13 years old, who'd been put in jail a decade ago for um, selling newspapers on the streets of various cities in Iran. Um, they'd done their time. A great many of them had 
finished their sentences and they were due for release and they had not been released and they were retried. And there were elements inside even the Islamic judiciary who were saying this is to delegitimize the judicial process because these people mm-hmm. have already served their time. We cannot uh, proceed with this. But Khomeini's response was, let's dispense with this nonsense, this um, judicial obstructionism, you know, get on with it. Basically. Sorry, sorry two, two steps back. You, you gave us the context for Khomeini's fatwa. What, what was the pretext? What, what was he saying the reason was for this sudden murder of all these prisoners? Yeah. Immediately after the um, ceasefire resolution and its acceptance by Iran, the Mujahideen attacked Iran and they reached as far as Kermanshah, Islam Shah, uh, and of course the Iranian army beat them back very quickly. It was a it was a catastrophe. They called it uh, Furur Javidan. The Iranian regime calls it Operation Mersad. Be that as it may, um, and this was something that obviously uh, gave the uh, pretext for um, cleaning out the prisons. And Khomeini issued a fatwa. And over the course of the years, they've come out with all sorts of contradictory explanations. Some saying that some of these prisoners were running the war effort. I don't know how you can run a war effort from inside a prison when you've been arrested when you were 12 years old and now you are whatever you are, 17, 18, 19, mm. and without communications, without anything. How you can run a war effort from inside these prisons, I don't know. But I mean, the, the web of lies and deceit and the contradictions that the regime is engaged in is really quite extraordinary. That's a story in itself. And, yeah. and from what I understand, I mean, there was very little warning. Uh, by the summer of 1988, for example, some of the families of some of these political prisoners suddenly stop hearing from them. There's no communication, and, and they later find out that they've just been killed. They've been murdered, yes? Yeah, they were... Uh, they were I've interviewed a great many of them. They were expecting the normal routine family visits and um, they were expecting their children to be released any minute. They were half hoping that when the war was over, then the regime would relax a little bit. And um, But then suddenly the telephones were cut. The witnesses have told me that televisions were removed. Uh, newspapers were stopped uh, in, in the prison. Uh, mail was stopped family visits were stopped and the prison went into lockdown and this was a pattern that was repeated in many many prisons across the country the net result was that rumors spread that there was going to be an amnesty and then there was other rumors saying there's an amnesty committee coming to investigate who should be amnestied and who should stay there with no warning at all but um when the prisoners realized that the um, various cells were being emptied and the prisoners were not coming back. Rumor began to spread that something very, very unpleasant was happening. And um, prisoners who'd been there for a long time, they were able to communicate through a Morse code uh, and that kind of um, communication methods that prisoners um, are pretty savvy at, especially if they've been there for a long time. And within a matter of days, rumors began that this is a death committee. It is not a amnesty committee. And unfortunately, that's what it turned out to be. Well, I was going to ask you about that because you you say that they uh, these trials, you know, took a, a few minutes. There was some kind of process. I mean, a sham of a process, whatever you want to call it. And there were these so-called death committees 
that would rove the country. There was three people uh, who would oversee uh, a sentencing. Can, can you give us a brief description of what these so-called death committees were? In Tehran itself, it was Raisi, the current president of Iran. It was Poor Mohammadi, um, who was the former minister of interior in Ahmadinejad government. There was Eshrari. Um, these were the, the key people who were, um, uh, and there was Nayiri, who was the prosecutor general of Iran for many, many years. And the trial took the form of simple questions. Um, what are you here for? If they uttered as much as the word Mujahideen, that was it. If they said Munafirin, the hypocrites, they would have a slightly better chance of survival. Um, uh, the hypocrites, uh, do you still support them? If you said, well, I'm not a political person, that was it. If you started engaging in an argument with them, that was it. Um, your only prospect of surviving was saying, I profoundly regret what I've done. These are criminals, they're murderers. The next question would, of course, be, are you willing to walk on a minefield for the Islamic Republic? Well, I can't imagine many people volunteering in such circumstances because they'd be, they'd be sent immediately down to the front to clear mines or whatever, because that sort of thing had happened. So there were a few trap questions, but the overwhelming majority of the witnesses that I have interviewed um, have said the trial lasted about two, three minutes. And um, the code word was take these people back to their cells. So what it meant was take them to the amphitheater where there were there were um, gallows and often for the first time a victim would know that he's about to be murdered was when he felt the rope around his neck um, because they had blindfolds they had no idea where they were going they were in a queue and they'd be taken they'd be sitting down and one by one they'd be taken to the gallows or and then because they had blindfolds they had no idea what was happening. And um, sometimes they would feel the uh, rope around their necks, and that's the first time there'd be a struggle. But of course, the struggle wouldn't survive very long. And Hamid Nuri was known, the person that we managed to arrest, was known to be a particularly sadistic killer. Um, when there were victims who were light in weight, and it would take them a little longer to suffocate, he would, um, he would, he would just hang on to them, and he would throw his weight on them so that they break their neck. Uh, or they suffocate sooner. Okay, so, let me let um, me get to him. Let me let me first ask you. I mean, I I actually want to get to how we've learned more about the 1988 massacre in 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 recent years. But uh, just to to remind us, I mean, in the moment in the late 1980s, how aware was the world, or for that matter, how aware how aware were Iranians in Iran of what was taking place in terms of this massacre by the government? I've spoken to eminent journalists who told me that right up to 2000, uh, year 2000, they had no idea that this was something that had happened. Um, when Ahmadinejad was elected, in inverted commas, because even his first election was a fraudulent, we know that, and he appointed this man, Pur Muhammadi, as his Minister of Interior, um, Human Rights Watch put out various communiques um, regarding communiques regarding ministers of murder. One of them named was Mr. Poor Mohammadi, and the kind of justifications that the government put out at that time, it began to um, speak to an issue that the overwhelming majority of Iranians had no idea about. Mm. Um, 
as late as the Iran tribunal, which took place in the summer of 2012 in London, I met um, uh, journalists who had no idea about this. 1988 to 2012 is a long time. So, um, so, and and then, uh, I mean, the regime uh, for it's almost 30 years uh, up until 2016 that the Iranian regime succeeds in kind of preserving a red line, no talk, no tears, no questioning about what happened in Iranian prisons in the in the summer of 1988. What was the information um, significantly that emerged that changed things in the summer of 2016? Well, it was, it was 2012, really, that the Iran tribunal was held. It was a, a, a Russell tribunal. It was a symbolic tribunal where, um, it, on the model of Bertrand Russell and Jean-Paul Sartre back in uh, the uh, late 1960s on uh, war crimes in Vietnam, uh, it, was a, it was a symbolic uh, w tribunal where uh, prominent um, jurists uh, sit in there as um, judges and uh, prosecutors would turn up and provide the evidence, bring the witnesses, and describe the narrative. And the tribunal found that this had taken place. And Iran, the Iranian regime's reaction was a giveaway. Uh, their response was so antagonistic and so vociferous that um, your average skeptical person would have to question why are they so responsive in such a reaction a way in, in such a reactive way to this if there was nothing why are they so worried about this you know um and so it was and then the Buruman foundation in washington they uh, commissioned um jeffrey robertson queen's council who was the president of the um, sierra leone special tribunal un tribunal for sierra leone to um, who's the head of Doughty Street Chambers, a uh, very dear friend, who was commissioned to look into this. Um, and I, I was honored to be asked to assist, and I did. And uh, Jeffrey examined um, the evidence, interviewed a great many witnesses, and wrote his um, uh, very incisive and conclusive report, the uh, 1988 prison massacres. And so, here was a very eminent international jurist who had uh, been commissioned to prepare this report, and he did. And the net result was um, that people began to take this much more seriously. And it was, um, but for that report, it would have been much more difficult for me and the team that I put together to arrest Nuri. But we'll come to that in a moment. Isn't um, there, isn't there the emergence of some kind of tape of a phone call or something in August of 2016? That's what I was referencing. No. Um, there was there was various justifications that the regime had started putting out. For example, when the Human Rights Watch um, put out those um, communiques uh, under the label "Ministers of Murder" and talked about Pur Mahamadi, talked about Eshrari, talked about Nayiri, and he was not a minister at that time, but he was a prosecutor general. Um, and the Iranian regime started responding to that, and of course that added fuel to the fire. People began to wonder what this is all about. The result was that we were able to record the response of the Iranian government and the justifications they provided was um, pretty compelling in the sense that they confirmed that these massacres had taken place. Mm. They no longer, up to about 2004-05, they categorically denied it happened. Um, but when Ahmadinejad decided to appoint one of these murderers uh, to the post of 
Minister of Justice um, and Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and various other um, judicial uh, NGOs began to raise this the profile of this massacre, uh, and the regime responded to that. Well, the responses were illustrative. Mm. They justified it in terms of um, uh, the war. Well, um, they said Iran was under attack and, and invasion. Well, I mean, there are war, there are laws of war. Just because there's a war, it doesn't mean you can massacre prisoners, you know, which is what they did. Right. And it doesn't mean you can massacre people who are far, far, far away from the front, who've been inside prisons for many, many years. Right. And so questions began to be asked, and the profile of the issue began to uh, rise, and um, um, some friends of mine began to look into this into in greater detail, and the result was the Iran Tribunal in 2012, and then Jeffrey Robertson's report a bit later, and then the rest is history. Yeah, there, there usually isn't uh, a very good reason for a massacre, and there certainly doesn't seem to be in in this case. Uh, uh, let me let me ask you a few questions. Let me walk you through some specific questions about Hamid Nouri. Um, for, first of all, uh, quite simply, who is Hamid Nouri, and what was his uh, alleged role, or what have you discovered about his role in 1988? I did not know who Nuri was because there are so many of these people in Iran that, unfortunately, the one thing is the supply is plentiful is mass murderers in this regime. Um, Nuri, I did not know who he was. Um, Mr. Mestali telephoned me on the 16th of October 2019. I was having breakfast and he knew that um, I do this uh, as my day job, as it were. And he said, um, uh, such and such a person is coming. How long do you need to arrest him? I said, well, it depends on who it is. It depends on where he's going to. It depends on the evidence there is against him. It depends on um, the uh, numerous uh, variables. Uh, tell me who he is. And he described him. He said he was a what passed as a Dardyar, deputy Dardyar, deputy prosecutor, at Gohardash prison, and he had also been at Evin prison at the time when Iraj Mestari had been a prisoner there. Um, I had met Iraj Mestari at a conference in Oxford in November of 2011, and he had told me about this. This conference was precisely about the prison massacres of 1988, where Jeffrey Robertson came and described uh, what he had discovered, and we were looking at the remedies. I was one of the lawyers who insisted that there are remedies in international criminal law. This is not time-barred. There's no such thing as statute of limitations on such crimes, although the International Criminal Court might not have immediate jurisdiction. But I and Jeffrey argued that this is a continuing crime because none of the bodies have been returned, and therefore the parents and the husbands or the wives or the children are continuing to suffer daily torture, expecting, you know, um, okay, mothers that rang me saying they still expected their children to return. So, 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 how and when did I want to get to the evidence that he was a torturer in a moment? But just the, the mechanics of this first: how and when did the Swedish authorities find Mister Nouri? Right when Mestari rang me, I said I need three witnesses and as much evidence, contemporary evidence at the time. He came to London three days later on the nineteenth of October and took me to the house of one witness and there was another so i've taken a legal colleague there and we interviewed them and based on that i said this is enough we'll arrest him 
and uh, we didn't know whether he was going to go to Italy. He'd got a Schengen visa from the Italian consulate in in Iran, but his intention was to go to Sweden. I was a little bit worried that he might arrive in Italy and he might get wind of what's going on. He might go back and whether we could arrest him in Italy or not. As it turned out, he got a um, direct flight from Tehran to Sweden. Now, on the 19th, I interviewed these uh, witnesses, and based on that, I decided to draw up a report, a complaint. I telephoned the prosecution service in Sweden, had a long conversation with the prosecutor there and in the war crimes unit, and I said that uh, this man has come in, described who he was. They said, well, file a complaint and we'll see what we do. In the meantime, I interviewed a number of lawyers in Sweden and selected one, uh, Mr. Joran Jmarsson, and then and chose him to join us on the legal team, um, and then filed the complaint. The complaint was initially war crimes, crimes against humanity, torture. Um, I was hoping that we'd be able to get genocide in, but the prosecutor wasn't willing to uh, accept that, which is fine. And he, the prosecution service said, okay, they have received the complaint and they will act on it. And on the morning of the 9th of November, that is exactly 20 days after I had taken the evidence from the three witnesses, Mr. Nuri arrived at um, Arlanda Airport in in Sweden, and he was arrested by the war crimes unit. He was charged immediately, and um, he was in a judicial quarantine for four days, so we couldn't talk about it until he was brought before the magistrate for an arraignment hearing. And the magistrate recognized that there was enough evidence and decided to hold him for a month. At that point, uh, it was... Um, nuclear bomb in terms of uh, news because mm. this is a, for the first time a a torturer and a mass murderer who committed these crimes inside iran was arrested outside iran so there were other Iranians who'd been arrested but that was for crimes outside iran nothing right iran. right right so so um sorry this may not this detail may not be that that important but what why was uh hami nuri going to sweden yeah he had been going there he had um he has relatives there. He has his stepdaughter there. And uh, the stepdaughter was involved in a um, matrimonial fight with her ex-husband. And her ex-husband was very worried that um, Hamid Nuri, who was a powerfully connected man in Iran, had the intention of coming and abducting his child, who was living with uh, his ex-wife, back to Iran. And his desperation, he had tried to contact various journalists in various places. And had gone into Google and found that Iraj Mestari had written about him, contacted him, and they met on the morning of the 16th, and he told me that there and then he telephoned you in London, and he said right in front of me, he said, um, he rang you, and he had told the uh, stepson-in-law of Nuri that I know the guy who can do this, and uh, I'm very happy that I succeeded. In, in so, so, Dr. Mustavi, let me ask you a question about this uh, um uh, just as a sidebar, and and maybe this will be cause for you to be immodest. But, but I mean, tell us why this is the first time someone has been charged in relation to the uh, to an atrocity in Iran to, to the 1988 massacre at the very least. Um, why I, is it because there wasn't enough evidence before, or is it literally because no one has thought this would be possible to be done until you did? 
Well, but I mean, for a better part of a decade, I've been screaming at the Iranian opposition saying, take law and legal remedies seriously. Iran is a country where there's never, ever in its two and a half thousand years of history had one single day of experience of the rule of law. And the judicial machinery is a machinery of mass murder. Uh, there was a period when under the Pahlavis, there was the effort to build up a decent judicial machinery. Well, you know where that went, unfortunately. So uh, they were not used to taking law seriously. And they thought this is all shenanigans and deals behind the scenes and all this. And I was very determined to make sure that they could see with their own eyes. This Nuri is the first, but as you probably know, I came within a whisker of arresting uh, Mansouri, Ghulam Reza Mansouri, who was murdered by the regime before we arrested him. Uh, I filed a complaint with the prosecution service in Germany and he fled. He fled to Romania and, well, you know, a few days later, he was found that he has... Um, he was suicided, as the Iranians say. You know, he threw himself out of the window. He was thrown out of the window. So, yes, Nuri was the first. And because, well, we were fortunate in, one, that we had the evidence. Two, that he went to a country where the rule of law is does exist, where there's a very active um, war crimes prosecution unit. Had he gone to Russia, of course, this wouldn't have happened. Had he gone mm. to Saudi Arabia for Mecca, it wouldn't have happened. But it's a salutary lesson. I don't think any of them are going to dare uh, to come out. I know that Javad Zarif is, doesn't dare come out. He was a former foreign minister. I know that former President Rouhani will not dare come out of Iran now because these these are uh, these are indictable war criminals. You think that, I mean, Zarif was was roaming around the United States three, three or four years ago. You think that he wouldn't come out now because of this trial, because he he thinks that he could then be somebody who'd also be charged? I think he can be charged. He was a member of the National Security Council in uh, what they call um, Arbana Siyah, Black November, in which uh, 2,326 citizens of Iran were murdered in cold blood by uh, live ammunition, with snipers firing and blowing their skulls away and this kind of thing. He was part of that National Security Council, which ordered the use of live ammunition on, on civilians. He's therefore, uh, there's no question that he has criminal responsibility, both under Article uh, 27, 28 of the ICC statute, as well as, as uh, under collective responsibility. So not him. A lot of these people are now effectively... Okay. Let, let me come back to that, that the precedent that this will, or already has set. Uh, back to Hamid Nouri, You've mentioned the evidence a couple of times. Uh, if you can do it very briefly, give, give us a sense of the, the evidence that Hamid Nouri was a torturer and why he's charged with war crimes. Right. When Mistari rang me, um, I asked him for a day. I said, let me reflect on this. Um, crimes against humanity, it was a question of statute of not set in limitations, but when did the doctrine of universal jurisdiction, when did it become incorporated into domestic statute law in Sweden? Um, crime, uh, crimes against humanity, well, we know what they are, but uh, torture and the extrajudicial killing, disappearance, this kind of thing. War crimes because um, the Iran's own excuse was that these were, uh, Iran had been invaded, and at the time, Iran was defending its national territory, and uh, these people were killed during the war. Well, we said if that's the case, these are war crimes. These are, and um, mm. the war crimes unit it decided that this was probably um, 
easier. Uh, I was, when we were writing the indictments, we the, the charge sheet, as it were, the complaints, um, we included war crimes, crimes against humanity, the crime of um, extrajudicial disappearance, um, the crime of, um, the continuing crime of not returning the bodies. Um, Continuing disappearance, you call it, right? Continuing disappearance. Yeah, because by definition, if the bodies have not been returned, the crime is continuing, and therefore there cannot be a statute of limitations on that. Um, so we were um, d- debating, what we, so we thought we'd just throw the kitchen sink at this and see which one the prosecutors would find easier. And then when I was invited to go to Sweden to meet the prosecuting team, um, I did argue with them that maybe I, I was really hoping that we could stick the charge of, we could make the charge of genocide stick. Because, you know, if that had succeeded, the consequence would have been very, very um, decisive. In terms Can I ask of- you about that? that? You've mentioned genocide a couple of times. I don't want to minimize the 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 deeply troubling nature of the atrocities here in terms of the massacre. But but genocide, I mean, how is Iranians killing other Iranians genocide? Well, genocide convention is if you kill um, a group of people because of their religion um, or race, if you murder, mass murder Jewish people, if you engage in mass murder against uh, Tutsis in Rwanda, if you engage in mass murder against Armenians, as the as the Ottomans had done in the massacre of the Armenians in 1916, if you engage in a, a massacre of the Kurds, as Saddam did in mm-hmm. Operation Anfal in in Kurdistan, um, where he used gas against um, uh, own citizens. In this instance, the argument I was running was that these people were selected uh, for murder on account of uh, the charge was leaving religion. You see. Leaving religion, in other words, you've become an infidel, an unbeliever. And so we're saying that is genocide. Now, the prosecutor didn't accept that. I think that is consistent with um, the decision of the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, because there, um, in Srebrenica, the massacre was Muslim men were selected and murdered because they were Muslim. They weren't because they weren't Yugoslavs. They weren't killed because they weren't nationals mm. of the country they were nationals of country they were the serbs murdered them because they were muslims so we looked at that jurisprudence very very carefully and i to my uh, considered view it it did apply but the prosecutors said look let me just you want to bang up this man in perpetuity let me just go the easiest way uh, the reason why i wanted it i confess that um i had he been charged with genocide and had he been convicted for genocide, it would have made my task on this on this Sudan model much easier mm. at the UN Security Council. We could have brought a genocide resolution to the Security Council and opened the door of the ICC to start taking jurisdiction over Iran, but we, we failed. In, in terms of the specifics of the the evidence of Hamid Nouri as a as a torturer. I mean, yes, he's you're saying he's part of this and the war crimes. What 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 did he do, or what is the allegation or the accusation of what he he actually did? He was one of the key people who selected the prisoners to go before the death committee. He um, recommended to the death committee to interview them. He uh, had in that case he had power of life and death over individuals. He lined them up and he took them to 
the gallows. He often put the rope around their neck and held the execution, ex a judicial murder, sorry, by, by hanging on to the um, victim and pulling him down harder. He was renowned, and I've had dozens of reports that after uh, a, a day's work of where hundreds were executed, murdered, um, he would distribute sweets just to torture the remaining prisoners. He would bring cakes and sweets and saying that um, this is a day of celebration. We've got rid of 800, 500, 300 infidels. So imagine the psychological torture that that inflicted on the survivors because they know it's going to be their turn tomorrow. Mm. And the chances of surviving that interview with the death committee was infinitesimal. So he's, his, his role was uh, proactively engaging in the massacre of uh, prisoners in 1988. He, he himself, Hamid Nouri, has, uh, first of all, he's called the prison massacre in general a fake and undocumented. I think he used the word fantasy last year. And, and his lawyers have said this is a, a basic case of mistaken identity. Got the wrong guy. He wasn't even at one of the prisons you're talking about. How, how powerful has his defense been so far? It's hopeless. Uh, there are hundreds of witnesses who have identified him personally. When he arrived in uh, Arlanda Airport, his first thing was, "I'm, I am Abbasi," you know. And they said, "Well, you know, Abbasi was a, a nom de guerre, as they used in the thing." Anyway, um, and then when he get, I got angry. He said, "What's it got to do with you?" And this is if it happened, it happened in Iran. And the prosecutor said, "Okay, fine, we're charging you, and you're under arrest. You don't have to say anything. But if you do, it'll be used against you and all that." His defense initially was that um, that it's a case of mistaken identity, but in fact, it's clearly not a case of mistaken identity. I think we've moved right beyond that. We've right beyond that. Now we're in a stage where um, uh, the defense is that. Um, uh, they tried, he was carrying out orders, and um, he was there, but he wasn't involved in that. He said that his wife had just given birth, and he was on leave, and the days he was coming for administrative purposes, this kind of stuff, but it's it's hopeless. I, I must confess, some of the foolishness of some of the witnesses and the complainants has not helped. They have turned it into, into a political theater, unfortunately. It's very sad. That's why I have very much withdrawn from it now. But I did my bit, which was to get him arrested. And I testified, as you know, on the 23rd of uh, February. And um, I, you know, the prosecutor asked me how I got to got involved. And um, so the record is perfectly clear what my role was. And that was it. Um, his, I have no doubt he's going to be convicted. His defenses are uh, are risible. Well, there, risible. There, there's reports of, I mean, I, I guess you were there, or some of it. There, there, there's reports of these outbursts from him in the Stockholm District Court uh, when people are testifying. But it's it's very interesting what he gets exercised about. Uh, can you can you speak to these the, the the shouting and the yelling and what happens with him? I think he was hoping that um, now that his immediate boss, Mr. Mr. Raisi, has become the president of Iran, he was hoping that he would intervene to either exchange him or that the Iranian regime would seize a few Swedish nationals. In fact, they have seized two Swedish nationals and they've charged them with drug dealing and they brought them before Salabati, who's Iran's current hanging judge, um, and charged these young Swedish boys with um, drug smuggling. The other... Um, 
uh, Swedish Iranian national um, Dr. Jalali. Um, he's been under a sentence of death for quite some time. He was taken to um, the um, solitary confinement, which is the place they keep you before they hang you the next day. On three occasions, I believe, um, on one occasion, he rang his family to say goodbye. Um, Iran tried the usual tactic of intimidation and blackmail. I did speak to the prosecutor at the time, and they said there is no chance whatsoever that Sweden would give up uh, this trial or they'd hand them over because now they are part of it. Iran has tried those techniques before, and sometimes they worked in the past, In most shamefully in the case of um, the assassins of Dr. Rasem Lu back in August of 1989. But now, of course, we have the International Criminal Court Act, and Sweden's part of that. They have an obligation to the international community not to allow this kind of impunity to uh, go unanswered. Um, he's, he's been screaming, hoping that Raisi would help him. It's odd, as you say, he's a very peculiar man. Um, when I said um, in the trial that this late unlamented Khomeini, he started screaming and saying, I should have manners, uh, I should have better manners. This coming from a man who was directly involved in the murder of thousands of people, objecting to my manners because I've said the late unlamented Ayatollah Khomeini. Mm. Or as somebody said that um, they were sitting in the corridor waiting to be interviewed um, uh, by the death committee, and they saw that um, lunch was brought to the death committee, kebabs and this sort of thing. And the witness uh, said to the tribunal in Stockholm that when I went before the tribunal, they were sitting there stuffing them, their faces like animals. And Nuri screamed, animals, your father, Gov Bobote. He started screaming, you know. Uh, and it just shows he's very sensitive about um, certain um issues. I think he's playing to the gallery, the Iranian regime's gallery, to say that he's a loyal servant of right. the regime. Very defensive about Khomeini. and uh, yes. he, he hasn't quite understood that this regime does not value loyalty. This regime is willing to um, uh, murder its own uh, supporters uh, of yesterday. What matters to them is whether they're useful to the, now. And clearly, Hamidinri is no longer useful. Um, so, He's, he's going to serve a very, very long time. You, you have the measured demeanor of a seasoned uh, lawyer. Uh, but uh, if I can just ask you on a personal note, and perhaps on an emotional uh, note, what after working on this for so long, what it was like for you to, you to testify last month? Well, I was very glad that we succeeded in getting him arrested because there's always, there's always the anxiety that... Um, you know, prosecutors have quite a bit of discretion in this sort of thing. And although I know that in Sweden, uh, political uh, influence has no impact on the decision of the prosecutor, but formally you still need the attorney general's um, uh, leave to, to proceed. So there was that, and the fact that, um, well, it was good that we actually succeeded. So emotionally it was, um, I must say, it's become, it's become a very bitter fruit by the reaction of some of the people that... Um, that have turned this into a political um, theatre. I, I profoundly regret that. I wish um, I wish they treated it as um, the uh, the trial that is um, going to break the back of sense of impunity, 
amongst the Iran regime, Iranian regime supporters. But you know, that's the sort of sweet bitter. Can, can, can you talk about? Can you talk about that? I mean, I, I mean, that's that is something that we deal with in the Iranian diaspora. What, in what way has it turned into political theater? Well, just look at the things they're saying about me. I'm just saying, you know, uh, I became just a postman. I was just a driver. I had nothing to do with it. You know, here I am under round-the-clock police protection because of this Nuri counterterrorism. Police arrived at my house and said, look, um, there's a fatwa on you uh, because of what you did. Uh, you know, it'd be nice if they um, if they kind of said, okay, well, this was a great and that's just... But anyway, that's such other ways of the Iranian diaspora, unfortunately. Yeah. What what do you think? Uh, you you're quite confident of a conviction. What do you think a conviction of Hamid Nouri uh, will mean to the families of the the victims of the massacre of 1988? It's interesting because um, a mother rang me three three days after the news broke out because he was arrested on the 9th of November. On the morning of the 13th of November, uh, 2019, he was brought before the. Uh, the, the court for an arraignment hearing, and that's when the judicial embargo was lifted and we could talk about it in the media. Three days later, I got a call from a mother who said to me that, Mr. Nisavi, I just want you to know that if I had died yesterday, I would have died with a broken heart. But I can tell you if I die tomorrow, there's going to be a big smile on my face. I said, Mom, I'm very happy to hear that. Um, he said, I just want you to know how exhilarated it is that this happened. But if you're in contact with him, tell him I'm prepared to forgive him. If only he would tell me where my daughter is buried. Mm. If only where. And, you know, I've had a dozen, if not more, probably more. I have made kept a record of families who rang and said, you have no idea what this has done to us. You have no idea. We never believed we'd see this. I said, well, you know, let's hope it's the first one. And then within within a few months, um, I had a go at trying to arrest Ghazi um, Mansouri, the other uh, hanging judge. Of course, he committed, sorry, he didn't commit suicide. He was suicided, as they say. He was murdered in Romania. Um, we continue because I know the impact of this is, it is really petrified. Um, uh, Navid Afkari, when he was murdered by the regime, um, members of his family, as well as um, friends, uh, they would ring me and say, you have no idea every time you go on television and you warn these people that Hamid Nouri is only the first and we're coming after you. You have no idea how frightened they are. So so let me use that as the segue to, uh, and certainly before I let you go, the, the million, I was going to say the million dollar question, it's probably the gazillion dollar question, but what, what are the implications of this trial? Um, in, in Stockholm for the current government of Iran and, and in fact, for the current president of Iran, Ibrahim Raisi. Well, Raisi was his direct boss. He was the direct boss of um, Hamid Nouri. Hamid Nouri reported to him. He was part of this sham machinery masquerading as a judicial machinery. It's nothing other than a machinery of mass murder. And um, the conviction of Hamid Nouri is going to mean the uh, arrest of uh, race is going to be much easier, much, much easier. Um, at the moment, he enjoys um, uh, immunity as a head of state, head of government, but not under international criminal law, he, under municipal law he does. So he cannot be arrested um, because Iran is not part of the International Criminal Court. And 
Um, he, but I don't think he would dare come. I, 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 it's no secret that I have prepared a, a complaint against him, and I'm hoping that uh, I'm having detailed conversations with the young prosecutor in a country that has the necessary judicial capability. And he has committed to me that if Raisi walks into a jurisdiction that where there is the rule of law and where the doctrine of universal jurisdiction applies, he will attempt to arrest him. And he will not be put off by the idea that he's the head of state because... Um, what, what if he doesn't walk into one of those places? Can any of, uh, of the other people who were involved, uh, including high-ranking high members of the Iranian government, like, like the ones we're talking about, be tried or charged in absentia? Not absentia, because I don't think we are interested in... We, we want to we get him. And I think... I have no doubts. I do know. I do know that the, they do not travel anymore. Or if they do... Um, they do try to come incognito. Um, it, its impact has been pretty devastating on them. Uh, I do know, and this is not speculation, I do know of individuals who were hoping to come out and they were warned by the security apparatus that um, you're running the risk of being arrested and we can't afford that risk anymore. So a lot of them are sitting there. The impact of this is, that's why I, I'm under round-the-clock police protection because... Um, because they do know that this has had a um, tremendous impact on... You see, we are trying to break the sense of impunity. They've enjoyed impunity for far too long. For too many years, they've thought they'd get away with it. And they did get away with it for too many years. But after Nuri, uh, they're going to know that they're not going to get away with it. If Mr. Nuri, or when Mr. Nuri is convicted, can he appeal? Oh, yeah, he'll appeal. That's why I expect a verdict to be out in May. And he'll appeal, and I think the appeal will probably be over by July. So by next autumn, we will know that he's um, he's going to serve a minimum of 20, 21 years. He's at 62, 63 years old now. And so, yeah, uh, he'll spend the rest of his days in prison. Dr. Kabe Musavi, I thank you very much for this today. It's my pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Kaveh Musavi is an Iranian-British human rights lawyer and international arbitrator at the International Court of Arbitration. He is also associate research fellow at Oxford University. And Dr. Kaveh Musavi joined us from Oxford, England today. This is full time for the Rook Media series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 27. Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at rookmedia.com. That's our website, rookmedia.com, where you can also become a patron. Thanks to the amazing team who make Rook Media happen. Talented Anna Hita, Super Patty Saw, Ponce of the Artist, Savvy Roham, Aray Mehrdad, the fabulous Kion, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe on any of our platforms if you've not done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizunbashin.